Tēnā koutou, no mai, haere mai, welcome to q and I'm Jack Tame. Tonight, the unfolding crisis over the Saudi oil field attack. Energy and Resources Minister Megan Woods on how it'll affect us. Then a massive challenge to our tourism industry, the eco-travellers who are boycotting long-haul flights for climate change. If enough people start acting, a change could happen really fast. And uh, I'm really hoping that this will become a global movement. The government has announced two inquiries into the latest mishandled sexual assault allegations against a Labour Party member. Who's at fault and how should it have been handled? Victims advocate Louise Nicholas is with us. And UK International Trade Secretary Liz Truss, once a Remainer, now a Brexit supporter. She says the UK's European divorce is happening, deal or no deal. And made a decision three years ago. We need to follow through on that decision. If you speak to the majority of British people in the pub, they will say to mm. you, we just want to get on with it. Plus, American drug reform activist Deborah Small. She's urging Kiwis to vote yes in next year's cannabis referendum. Data shows that there's a significant number of New Zealanders already who are smoking cannabis regularly, and that's across all communities. So you have to come from the place that it's already here. The question is, how are you going to manage the fact that it's already here? That interview coming up shortly. But as we go to air, the global oil supply is under threat after a massive attack on oil fields in Saudi Arabia. The US blames Iran for the drone attack and is threatening retaliatory military action. Iran denies the charge, but the attack will affect almost all of us as a sharp increase in the price of crude oil is passed on at the pump. A short while ago, I asked Energy and Resources Minister Megan Woods just how much the attack will affect the global oil supply. Well, actually, what we've seen today um, is actually um, not as great an impact as some analysts were predicting, even over the weekend. So the New Zealand market opened at 60, uh, shot up to $72 a barrel, but then by the close of play was down to $66, and actually the futures was down to to $58. And that's largely because the US uh, released some of its strategic reserves, which which has really countered some of the anxieties, I think, that the market was feeling earlier in the day. How long is that going to tide us over? Well, I think one of the things that um, this is a bit of a, a case of waiting. Um, what we've heard from the, the Saudi oil minister is that um, there'll be more information tomorrow. And that's really around whether this is going to be a few days to mm. restore production and get that back up and running, or whether it's going to be the two weeks that some people have been talking about. But I think one of the things that we do know um, in recent years, the global oil market has been set up um, to make sure that, it, that we don't have um, huge variations when things happen. Um, and that really that that we do have um, release valves in there that ensures yeah. that equilibrium can come back into play. That being said, incidents like this are pretty uncommon. I see the early numbers out of um, uh, you know, suggest that five percent of the world's daily yeah. oil supply has been affected. What then are your experts telling you in terms of price at the pump for the average New Zealand consumer? What should we expect? And look, um, we have been talking to experts all day. Um, we've been talking to the International Energy Agency, which is of course the international agency of which we're a member. Um, that is set up to help us manage us through situations like this. Um, as I said, um, we've, we've had a close tracking of the, mm. the, the barrel price. Um, what my analysts are telling me is that um, a dollar rise in, in a barrel means about a cent at the pump for consumers. Um, so that what, what we are making sure um, is that we're keeping close 
access to the International Energy Agency. Right. We're getting as much intelligence through as we can. Um, but look, we're not even close to the International Energy Agency um, starting to do release of strategic uh, reserves of the tickets right. that New Zealand holds. Okay, so if, we, if we're looking at a, at a rise of six or eight dollars uh, a barrel today, then we can probably expect a rise of six or eight cents per litre at the pump. Well, that's what it closed at, but I think the other yeah. really important figure um, is that futures market, the 58 cents, yeah. um, which actually is lower than what, what um, the market opened at today, which uh, what that tells us in simple terms is that analysts are believing in December um, that um, oil price per barrel will be lower than it is today. OK. What can the government do to help if that's not the case, if things get really serious at the pump and we see significant price rises? Well, of course, we're set up to deal with this. Um, as I said, the international um, and global oil market is set up with these release valves. So one of the things that New Zealand does is it buys um, what we call oil tickets. Um, so it's, it's not hard to foresee um, that there could be some problems um, in the part of the world where a lot of our oil is produced. Mm. Um, so that we purchase um, these, these tickets um, that if there is a problem, we've got um, basically a month's worth of oil um, crude that is held offshore that we can bring in. So that um, it's that forward planning, really, that we can activate. Mm. But we'd have to see prices rise by about $20 a barrel um, in order for some of those um, strategic reserves to be released. So we're not close to that. I think it's a case of um, waiting to see what the Saudi oil minister has to say tomorrow mm. in, in terms of, of um, what the likely time frame will be. Certainly we saw the anxiety anxiety disappearing from some parts of the market today. But I think one of the things, although New Zealand doesn't really buy um, oil from Saudi itself, most of our Middle Eastern mm. oil comes from the, from Emirates, um, when, um, when you know, one country in this, in this global network a gets a... Yeah, yeah, yeah. When, it, when one sneezes, everyone well, gets a cold. What about if there, is, if there is a sustained period of significant increases at the pump, in a worst-case scenario, if you like, would the government consider getting rid of the regional fuel tax, at least temporarily? So, um, look, I got some advice around this today, what's happened in the past, because, of course, this isn't the first spike that we've seen in relation to, to global events mm. around international oil prices. And if we look back even to the period from 2011 to 2015, we saw that um, price per barrel was up to $100 to $120 a barrel, where it's sort of $60 to $70 today. We certainly didn't have um, tax being taken off um, mm. or excise duty being taken off petrol then. And there is a really good reason for that, and that's because this income is how we pay for transport in this country. Um, it's how we pay for projects like the Manawatu Gorge. It's how we pay for the Hamilton... But the regional fuel thing. tax is additional to that excise tax. So I just wonder, in a worst-case scenario, would you consider scrapping that temporarily? Well, it, it's not something we've ever seen in the past. It's not something we're considering. And as I said, that actually mm. we are nowhere near um, some of the price per barrels that we've seen even in very recent um, recent times, so the 2011 to 2015 period, where we got up to 100 to 120 dollars a barrel over a sustained period of time, really over a period of four years. Um, that the fact of the matter is that we still have to pay for our roading infrastructure and our transport infrastructure. Energy and Resources Minister Megan Woods. Coming up on Q&A, victim advocate Louise Nicholas. What Labor got wrong and how they should have handled the alleged sexual assault of a party member. And the UK's International Trade Secretary in New Zealand today. Can her government break the Brexit impasse? 
But up next, we're sticking with oil and those giving up flying for climate change. Fina Owen looks at an eco-movement gathering speed around the world that has implications for our biggest export earner. If it takes hold and uh, it affects significant markets for New Zealand, then um, we potentially have fewer people coming. Hoki mai anō, welcome back to Q&A. Aviation is responsible for around 5% of global carbon emissions, and the number of people flying only continues to grow. But around the world, a number of environmental groups are hoping to put a dent in that figure by encouraging tourists to boycott plane travel. The movement is being closely watched by our tourism industry, who say if it gathers momentum, the no-fly movement could put our largest export earner at risk. Here's Fena Owen. Now, would you like tea or coffee? It wasn't that long ago that flying was something really special. Something you saved up for, a treat for the lucky few. Air travel has increased eightfold in 40 years. Last year, airlines transported 4.3 billion passengers. Auckland University scientist Dr Sean Hendy wasn't one of them. When he needs to get to Wellington for meetings, he takes the train. Hi, Sean. Hi, how are you doing? Hi, how's your trip? Yeah, it was good, yeah. Lovely day coming down through the central North Island. Isn't it a luxury, though, to be able to take the train? I mean, are you a privileged virtue signaller, Sean? <laughs> that was actually part of the point, was to, was to signal to people. I did actually want to get a message across. Sean Hendy is part of a wider movement which came out of Sweden, known as flexgum, or flight shaming. What does flight shaming mean? <laughs> Who's being shamed, the airlines yeah. or the, or the travellers? Yeah, look, I mean, I think it is, it is the, the travellers, I think, um, and you do see this. I mean, I was really conscious of not trying to shame people. I think that's the wrong way to go about it. Um, it's about taking control of your own carbon footprint. Globally, the airline industry is responsible for just under 3% of carbon dioxide emissions. Recently, Extinction Rebellion has focused its protest on the airline industry, but it was Swedish teen Greta Thunberg's voyage to America that exposed millions of people to the idea of flegscum. I am not telling anyone what to do or what not to do. I'm just doing this because I want to do this. Another Swedish climate warrior, Maya Rosen, leads the flegscum movement, or what she prefers to call We Stay on the Ground. She talked to Q&A via Skype about her latest push, the Flight Free 2020 campaign. In our campaign, you pledge to take a year without flying, provided that 100,000 people promise to do the same thing. If enough people start acting, a change could happen really fast. And uh, I'm really hoping that this will become a global movement. Hi, I'm Anna from Flight Free UK. We are asking 100,000 people to pledge not to fly next year. I wonder if you could be one of those people that signed today. The movement is now gathering strength in the UK and Germany, with a little pickup in the States. But what could that mean for a small country at the bottom of the world? We have to take issues like flight shaming very seriously because if it takes hold and uh, it affects significant markets for New Zealand, then um, we potentially have fewer people coming. Already the numbers of Swedish tourists coming to New Zealand are slightly down. I think I would have loved to see New Zealand, but I, I would much more love for my children to have a future. So 
I mean, it's a shame, but I think you have to understand that you can't do everything in life. Isn't it easier for um, the Swedes, for instance, to say they're going to give up flying? I mean, I think it is, right? I mean, in New Zealand, we're in a we're in, you know, remote part of the world and we haven't got the public infra uh, transport infrastructure that they do in Europe. So, yeah, I think it is easier for people in Europe to, to give it up. On the other hand, you know, it makes more of a difference when we do it, <laughs> right? When we, because we're emitting so much carbon through our travel, when we take a stand, actually, we're making more of a, you know, that, that's a more significant difference. Maya, tourism is our biggest export earner down here. So can you see why the Flexgum movement could be problematic for New Zealand? I can see that there are concerns because, as you say, many people make their living out of tourism. But at the same time, there are so many places in the world that are actually almost completely destroyed due to this. So I'm not saying that this will be easy. New Zealand relies on air transport to connect to the world. Um, we have to remember that half the passengers on these planes flying in and out of New Zealand are New Zealanders. Do you think it's impossible, being down at the bottom of the planet, to be absolutist about flying, to give it up completely? Yeah, and I, th I think particularly since many of us have friends and family overseas, you know, we, we, uh, we want to take our, our kids to see their grandparents. Yeah. Most of Dr Hendy's family live overseas. After a year of no flying, he took some flights, but he's still got his carbon footprint down by 30%, and he's offsetting carbon by investing in tree planting. I don't think that carbon offsetting is a good idea because I really think it signalises that it's sort of an easy way out, that you can sort of buy yourself free from your emissions, and we really can't. There are so many green politicians um, who say that we should save the climate, but then if they keep flying, people don't take them seriously. So I really think it's very important to lead by example. To fly more responsibly. Even an airline is leading by example. A few months ago, KLM launched an ad encouraging people not to fly. one thing to, if you're flying for your, to see friends and family, it's another thing if you're, if you're jetting off to, to get your suntan. Um, so and and flaunting it all over Facebook. And flaunting it on Facebook, yeah. I think we'll see people being cr criticised for, for that, for excessive flying. Um, oh, for, for putting it all over for putting, Facebook. For sharing it, yeah, yeah, that will definitely, I think that's already happening. It's becoming more common that somebody will actually make a comment about climate change on those kind of pictures. A long distance flight is nothing that we are, it's nothing to be proud of anymore because the norm has started to change here. So maybe it's these sorts of low-carbon holiday snaps that'll now get all the likes. But it's no joke for the New Zealand travel industry. Flight shaming is a developing issue. We're keeping a very close eye on it. We as a country, as an industry, can show that we are all doing everything we can uh, to reduce uh, our carbon footprint. Um, then uh, that helps uh, tell a story to the world that uh, we're taking a responsible attitude in this country and you should still come. <laughs> Cuts a bit close to home. The founder of the uh, flight free movement you saw in that piece, Maya Rosen, told us she wants to hear from any Kiwis wanting to run the flight free 2020 campaign here in Aotearoa. Let's see what Jenny has planned for us on tonight. Thanks, Jack. Tonight, a rush to fill up at the petrol stations after an attack on the world's largest oil processing plant. How high could prices go? A huge win for thousands of Canterbury earthquake claimants following an unusual move from the Court of Appeal. 
they may be thirsty for a World Cup win, but could rugby fans in Japan be left high and dry over a shortage of beer? Plus, Jojo Rabbit's leaps and bounds. Why Taika Waititi's latest film could now be in line for an Oscar nod. Join us for all that and tomorrow's weather at 10.35. Kia ora, Jenny. Looking forward to it. Hey, send us your thoughts. We're on Twitter at NZQ&A. You can email us at Q&A at tvnz.co.nz and don't forget the Q&A podcast. The Prime Minister is under pressure over her party's handling of a sexual assault allegation. What should Labour have done? Victim advocate Louise Nicholas is here next. And later, the war on drugs. An American lawyer and drug reform campaigner tells me why harsh drug policies have failed. It seems to me that keeping it illegal keeps you from being able to have a public health approach to something that a significant part of the population is already using. Kia ora, welcome back. This afternoon at the Prime Minister's post-Cabinet media conference, Jacinda Ardern announced not one, but two inquiries, admitting, admitting Labour had botched the handling of abuse complaints, including a sexual assault claim against a former party staffer. First off, let me be clear again, the Labour Party has not dealt with these complaints adequately or appropriately. While the party has continued to maintain that they weren't in receipt of the complaints that have since been published in the media, that is secondary to the fact that the complaints made to the party were of significant concern and needed to be heard in a timely way. That didn't happen. Now it is our job to right that wrong. Muddying the waters, one of the people originally charged with investigating the abuse allegations, Labour Party Council member Simon Mitchell, is defending himself, saying he never heard allegations of sexual assault. But... Given they were referenced in the media and given the Prime Minister herself was asked in interviews, shouldn't the party have done better? Victims advocate Louise Nicholas is with us this evening. Tēnā koe, welcome to Q&A. Tēnā koe. What is your assessment of how the complaint has been handled by Labour? When there's a, uh, a complaint, especially a serious complaint of sexual assault, the first thing that should have happened was uh, specialist support brought in to ensure that the complainant's needs were met. That hasn't happened. Um, I do know that the young woman didn't want to go to police for um, obvious reasons that she has given. Um, but still, it, it needed that, uh, that, that support around her so that um, any, any questions or anything that she needed, those needs were met. So it's important to point out that, that at this stage, the people who were involved in that initial panel say they didn't understand yeah there were complaints of sexual assault. Yes, they understood there were complaints of abuse, but not necessarily of sexual assault. But if you, if you step back for a moment and consider the Prime Minister's comments this afternoon, after the Labour youth camp incident, yep. this is the second time the party has been involved in incidents involving allegations of sexual abuse, the second time the party, by its own admission, says they've handled it wrong. What does that say about Labour's leadership? Well, I think it's just uh, Labour um, people. It's not just about the leadership. It's actually about people within the Labour Party and what they need to do, what they, they need to actually step up. They need to have policies and procedures in place for um, allegations like this. And regardless if it's, if, if it's a sexual assault or harassment or bullying, they need to have something in place so that those people that are, that are complaining, that are, that are going to their leaders saying, this is what's happening, mm. Those people know what to do with this. And 
obviously they don't at this stage. Does it not seem extraordinary to you that the Labour Party, of all organisations, should be mishandling these sorts of complaints, given the Prime Minister herself has been fairly strong in her support of the Me Too movement? Yeah, well, look, it, the way I see it is that regardless of, of what organisation or institution or business or whatever, leaders within all those organisations need to have policy, procedure, they need to have somebody or bodies that uh, people can actually go to uh, when stuff like this happens. Mm. It's not just the Labour Party, it's not just the National Party, it's, it's, it's about having people there to actually support those that come forward, because it takes mm. a hell of a lot of guts and courage and strength to come forward with such allegations. So what should a victim-led approach look like? Well, I reckon, and I've been thinking about this a lot, and uh, I think what we need is, is a independent body, like a... Um, Kim McGregor actually put it out there a wee while ago, having a victim's mm. commission. And, and I think she's, she's right on target with that. So it's an independent body that uh, people can go to outside their workplace and say, look, I don't know what to do here. I don't know how to um, move forward. Mm. Can you help me? What advice can you give me? And that's the big one. Uh, some people would say, we have that already. It's called the police. And there are people that don't want to go to the police. Mm. And I get that. I absolutely get that. But who do, who do they go to? So when all this bad stuff is happening and all they want is information, all they want is support, what, the where to, what do I do? Mm. There's actually nothing out there. From an organisational perspective, did Labor make the right decision to investigate these abuse allegations, even if they didn't know the abuse allegations involved sexual abuse? I think, you know, any organisation should have an independent port in to look at allegations like that. I don't think it should be in-house. When you consider the timeline for all of this, and I appreciate some of the detail is a little bit fiddly, mm. you can go back to the start of last month when media reports first referenced that these abuse allegations were involving sexual abuse. It's taken until more than a month later for the Prime Minister to, to act. Do you think she's taken too long? Well, I mean, you know, that, and that said, I, I guess the hard part for um, everybody out in New Zealand um, we don't actually know what happened, how it happened. The inquiries will hopefully get to the bottom of mm. that. Um, I, I, I just think, you know, that is something we're going to have to wait for and find out why it took so long. Do you think in your experience it would be normal for an organisation, and I'm not saying this is necessarily the case in this instance, but would it be normal for an organisation um, to try and protect a leader from certain information so that perhaps senior executives or senior officials might hold back some of that information from a leader? Yep, and, and they, they obviously do do that. Um, but in serious allegations such as what we have been hearing in the last mm. while, that should have been brought to um, the Prime, Minister's, uh, Prime Minister's attention ASAP. Yeah, I know, I know there will be many people watching right now who say it had to have been brought to the Prime Minister's attention, that this was in the media more than a month ago, and even if the party hadn't officially received or didn't believe it had officially received sexual abuse allegations, at that point, 
The Prime Minister herself, as the leader of the Labour Party, should have been banging down doors and finding exactly what these allegations involved. Talk us through the process from here. Are you satisfied with the inquiries that have been established by Labour? Uh, well, that the inquiries have been brought about because this is what the uh, Prime Minister and um, her people feel needs to happen, which is a good thing, but it's also taking into account what the complainants want. And mm. that is the most important thing. It's not just about what the Prime Minister wants or what the Labour Party wants or what anybody else wants. It's mm. about the, um, the, the complainants and ensuring that their needs are met. And, and I, you know, for me, it's, it's kind of like turned into this, this political scrum. And I think that's really, really wrong. You don't bring politics into this. It's about the safety and the well-being um, of, of the people that are involved. So it's, I think the inquiry is a good thing and it's up to the, to the complainants whether or not they take that further. It, it seems likely in, from your perspective that the results of that inquiry will be redacted, that, that the media won't be privy to a lot of that information. Is that, would that be a normal practice? Yeah, absolutely. It, it, like I say, it does mm. come down to what the um, complainants needs and, and wants are and mm. their safety and well-being is paramount to all of this. So when we're supporting survivors through the court process, exactly the same thing. Their needs and their wants are paramount to having their safety. Just for the record then, we know Labor um, is uh, involving victims advocates as they move forward from this point. You aren't involved with no. Labor at all? No, I'm not. All right. Thank you very much for your time as always, Thank Louise. You. Louise Nicholas. Shortly on q and I'm talking cannabis reform with an American who's seen firsthand the impact of legalisation and the dark side of the war on drugs. But next, the UK's International Trade Secretary. She's here in Aotearoa to begin negotiating a free trade deal, but can she and her government get out of Europe first? British public who've been waiting for three years mm. for their decision to be implemented will be incredibly frustrated and there'll be a lack of trust in politicians and democracy. So it's really important we move ahead. No mai hoki mai. Britain's International Trade Secretary is spending a few weeks calling on old Commonwealth pals. She's hoping to advance a number of trade deals ahead of the UK's Brexit divorce, whenever that is. Liz Truss was once a Remainer, but after Brexit she changed her mind, got behind Boris Johnson and was appointed to a top role in his cabinet. We spoke today and I began by asking what will happen in the event of a no-deal Brexit already got arrangements in place to make sure that goods continue to flow, that our ports continue to work. And of course, there would be potentially some tariffs on goods. But I believe that in the very short order, we would be able to strike a free trade deal with the EU. It's interesting to consider documents produced by the British government and leaked within the last couple of weeks indicating the worst case scenario, uh, scenario for a no-deal Brexit. It would mean, according to the British government's own numbers, a three-month meltdown at British ports, a hard Irish border, shortages of food and medicine, and up to 85% of British trucks wouldn't be ready for French customs on the 1st of November. That doesn't sound consistent with what you're telling us. But that is a... You know, it's always right that officials in any government have to look at what could possibly happen in any scenario, but that is not a likely scenario. The very likely scenario 
even if we got no deal, is that we would be able to continue to trade. The truck movements would take place. We put in lots of place, lots of contingencies to make that happen. And this is vitally important, because if we don't leave on the 31st of October, you know, the British public, who've been waiting for three years mm. for their decision to be implemented, will be incredibly frustrated, and there'll be a lack of trust in politicians and democracy. So it's really important we move ahead. I'm very confident we've got all the contingency arrangements in place. Ultimately, this is about trade. It's about, and New Zealand is a great example of a free trading nation that has very low tariffs for the rest of the world. That's what we want with the EU. But we also want to be able to strike trade deals with the rest of the world. You speak about trust. Do you think the majority of Britons who supported Brexit expected there would be no deal? Well, I think that they wanted to leave the European Union. This is an issue of sovereignty. It's an issue of Britain being mm. able to take control of its own decisions, decide its own rule and regulations, and be able to strike trade deals with the rest of the world. That's what people wanted. And anybody who negotiates knows that you can't go into a situation not being prepared to walk away. You have to be prepared to ultimately say, the deal that's on the table isn't good enough. We're not going to go through with that. And of course, as we all know, there are lots of countries we trade with on WTO terms already, and there's still very mm. good trade between those nations. That's ultimately the backstop. If we didn't get a deal with the EU, we'd be trading with them on WTO terms. So you wouldn't support a second referendum? Absolutely not. Britain made a decision three years ago. We need to follow through on that decision. If you speak to the majority of British people in the pub, they will say to mm. you, we just want to get on with it, and we want to get on with the positive side of Brexit, which mm. is the new deals we can do with the rest of the world. That's why I'm in New Zealand this week. I'm going to be going to Australia later on this week to talk about the new opportunities that is brought about by Brexit and by global Britain reaching out further mm. into the world. I'll ask you about New Zealand and your meetings today in just a moment. But, but is it not true that when the majority of Britons voted on Brexit and voted to leave the European Union, they expected there would be a deal with the European Union? And actually, if it comes to remaining in the EU or a hard Brexit, a no-deal Brexit, many people might change their mind. I disagree. What people voted on is the fact they were frustrated that a lot of decisions that should have been taken in Britain mm. were being taken in Brussels. And they wanted to sort that situation out. They wanted Britain to decide their parliament to make those decisions. Ultimately, I mean, no deal is somewhat of a misnomer. If we left on the 31st without a specific deal with the EU, we would be on WTO terms, mm. which is a perfectly reasonable form of trade. New Zealand trades with lots of countries in the world on WTO terms, still manages to have a perfectly good trading mm. relationship. Of course, we'd rather have a good free trade agreement with the EU, mm. but we're not prepared to do a deal at any price. And no country going into a negotiation would be prepared to do a deal at any price. But you've changed your mind on Brexit. You were a Remainer. You now support Brexit. Shouldn't the British public be given the same opportunity? Well, I listened to the arguments during the referendum campaign. I've listened to the arguments since. And I think that we have shown that Britain will have a successful future outside the EU. I've been convinced by the arguments. And many people are in my position, having mm. voted Remain 
in the referendum, many people are now saying, actually, we can see a bright future for Britain. Let's get on with it. Let's talk about New Zealand. If you exit on October 31st, when will the UK sign a free, de uh, a free trade deal with New Zealand? Well, as soon as possible is the answer. Uh, in any case, in any scenario, deal or no deal, I want to strike a free trade deal with New Zealand. It's one of our top priorities. We've already conducted the consultation in Britain. Uh, we want to get on with it. We're working on our mandate within government. And that's why I'm here this week, mm. to prepare the ground for that with Minister Peters, your Deputy Prime Minister, Minister Parker, very, very positive conversations. And of course, if the right deal is available for the UK, we will strike a deal. So tell us about those meetings. How inclusive would a free trade deal be? I would like to see a comprehensive free trade deal with New Zealand that covered all aspects of our economy. Uh, we've got a lot in common, strong historical relationship, both great believers in free trade. So everything from digital services to financial services mm. to goods, I would want to see included in a trade deal. I know that Brexit is viewed by some as being anti-immigration. Will New Zealanders continue to be welcome on working holidays in the UK after Brexit? Absolutely. And it's completely wrong to think that Brexit is anti-immigration. What it is against is free movement of people, which means that there is a unlimited flow between the UK and the rest of Europe. What we do want to do is encourage people with the right skills, the right talents to come to the UK. And in fact, we've recently announced mm. that we're going to invite overseas students to be able to stay longer in the UK and to be able to work in the UK for a limited period after their course. So we, what we want to do is, of course, continue to offer visas to uh, New Zealanders, but also look at how we bring the brightest and best into Britain and be able to use their talents. We want to continue to be an open nation, but we want to be able to make those sovereign decisions as a country. Does, does that mean the rules will be tightened in some ways for New Zealanders who want to take a working holiday in the UK? No, it doesn't mean that at all. What it means is that we are looking at the world as a whole in terms of which skills we need in Britain, mm. which opportunities there are in Britain. But we have already have a very strong working relationship with New Zealand. We already have specific arrangements with New Zealand. Those will remain. Yeah, New Zealand has, has traditionally looked to Britain, I think, as a, as, a, as a stable and mature democracy. But the events of the last couple of years, and I wonder if you've had this impression in talking to New Zealanders today, is that this whole thing is a giant mess. Do you, do you feel embarrassed for the UK at all? Not at all. I think what's happening in the UK is democracy in action. The British public voted to take more control over their decisions, and we are delivering on that. You know, am I frustrated it's taken three years? Yes. You know, have there been difficulties? Yes. But democracy is all about having that debate in public, and I wouldn't want to live in a country where those kind of arguments are suppressed. I think it's good that we have those arguments and we have those disputes out in public and that we mm. have those debates in Parliament. That, to me, shows every sign of a healthy democracy. That is the British Secretary of State for International Trade, Liz Truss. After the break on Q&A, how will you be voting in next year's cannabis referendum? An American lawyer talks about the impact of legalisation there. Many of the things that people feared before we legalized have not become problems, have not materialized.
Kia ora, welcome back to Q&A. Ahead of next year's cannabis referendum, drug reform advocates point to the disproportionate effect cannabis policing has had on Māori, who are more likely than other groups to be charged for drug offences. And it's that kind of discrimination that fires up American lawyer and social activist Deborah Small. She's the founder of Break the Chains, Communities of Colour and the War on Drugs. I met her today and asked her what New Zealand could learn from legalisation of cannabis in some US states. I think one of the lessons that you can learn that we've learned in California is that many of the things that people feared before we legalized have not become problems, have not materialized. <clears throat> we've not seen an increase of use of cannabis by young people. We've not seen an increase of crime or violence that's related to cannabis in any way. What we have seen, in fact, is a reduction in opiate abuse in the states that legalize cannabis, which we see as being a good thing because it means a reduction in opiate, um, opiate overdose deaths. There must have been some downsides. Um, there's, I think, maybe one of the downsides is for some people that there are more dispensaries than they might like in some communities throughout the state. Um, and also the price for some people has been prohibitive because there's been a fair amount of taxes put on cannabis. In many places, the percentage is like 40% tax, and that's fairly high, particularly for low-income people. You say that there hasn't been a significant increase in the number of uh, people, particularly young people, using cannabis. But that's still one of the major concerns in New Zealand, heading into next year's referendum. The legal purchase age in New Zealand would be 20, but we know that brains are developing up into 25. So aside from the justice issues or solutions that might come out of legalisation, what about the health side? Well, our purchase issue um, um, age, rather, is 21 at the age that you can legally buy in the states that have um, passed that. And I think the thing that people forget is that the use of cannabis by young people has been pretty much consistent throughout the entire time of marijuana prohibition. About 50% of all young people report having used cannabis by the time that they're 18 years old. Most of them do not go on to have other significant drug problems, but they do experiment. And one of the things about legalization is that you have more safety, because now young people, if they have access to it, have access to cannabis that doesn't have any adulterants, that's been tested, that they know what they're getting, how potent it is, etc., which is not true when you're getting it on the illicit market. But how can we be sure that, that particularly those people who are able to buy it legally in New Zealand, hypothetically? Mm -hmm. So between the ages of 20 and, say, 25, how can we be sure that larger numbers of those people won't start using cannabis than are currently using cannabis? Well, you know, one of the things is that what we've seen is a transference of people from using alcohol to cannabis. And if you think about the harmfulness of drugs, alcohol is actually more harmful. So you might see an increase in cannabis use, but you have to compare it to the use of other drugs. How would it impact New Zealand's synthetic problem? 75 people have died in New Zealand since synthetic drugs were criminalised. Well, again, most synthetic drugs are marketed to poor people, to really low-income people, to people who are marginalised. They're illegal in New Zealand at the moment. I know, but they're within the category of illegal drugs, where we've seen it be a problem has been around the homeless, among, you know, very marginalised populations. And from my understanding, the people who've died here have also come from marginalised populations. And so the hope is that through legalisation of cannabis, those people would have access to that at a cheaper price and would not be as susceptible to using synthetic cannabis. 
you visited Arohata Women's Prison mm -hmm. this week. What were your impressions? Well, you know, it's interesting because that was the first day that I was here, and I had visited there about a decade ago. And the thing that struck me was how many things had remained the same, in the sense that drugs and alcohol abuse were the main reasons why women found themselves there. They all said that they had not been able to access treatment in their communities, even though they wanted it. Many of them had been separated from their children, and that caused real harm to them and to their children. And it just seemed to me that that's something that was true a decade ago, and it's still true today. And a disproportionate number of them were Maori. Just like in our country, a disproportionate number of women behind bars are black or brown women. And in that regard, I think that our system is really failing women and their children around these issues, because the repercussions of an arrest or incarceration are not just to the women, it's to all the other people who depend on them. Mm. That being said, there are many Māori people in New Zealand who would oppose the legalisation of cannabis, who say that affects the wairua of cannabis users, the spirit of cannabis users, and they're concerned it will normalise the usage within their communities and lead to more damage? Well, the only thing I can say about that, because I'm not from here, but the data shows that there's a significant number of New Zealanders already who are smoking cannabis regularly, and that's across all communities. So you have to come from the place that it's already here. The question is, how are you going to manage the fact that it's already here? Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that keeping it illegal keeps you from being able to have a public health approach to something that a significant part of the population is already using. Let's talk about the, the drug or the war on drugs more generally. In, in what ways has the opioid epidemic in the United States changed attitudes towards drugs? I think it's helped in the sense that, I don't mean it in a positive way, I think one of the results of um, the crisis that we're in mm. is that it's lifted the veil of denial that many people had that drug problems existed in their community. For many, many years, people thought that um, drug abuse only existed in poor communities, in communities of color. So they were able to ignore the fact that many of their children were also involved in drugs. And one of the things about the opiate crisis, which is also very much a fentanyl crisis, it's come so quickly and in ways that have impacted so many people mm. that they now recognize that this is not just other people's problems, it's their problem too. It's interesting how attitudes change, isn't it? You, you know, you think back to the crack cocaine epidemic and that public messaging, just say no. Are you cynical about some of the changes that we're witnessing now? You know, now that white people are dying, all of a sudden it becomes a health problem? I'm not cynical. It makes me hopeful. I think that it's hard for people who have become attached to a particular way of thinking mm. to change when they don't think that that harms them. One of the things about drug policy more broadly in the U.S. and elsewhere is that more and more countries are recognizing that these policies hurt them, hurt their countries, hurt their people, hurt their health. It's not just about Latin America. It's not just about Mexico. Mm. And so it has them think about, does punishment work? Does law enforcement reliance work? We've been doing this over and over for five decades. Do we want to keep doing that? And so, yes, you might say, well, you know, we've known this for a long time and it didn't make change. I'm happy for change for whatever the reason that brings people to that place. What about the role of big business, though? Because when you consider those numbers um, in the U.S., 70,000 people 
died of overdoses uh, in 2017. We see that Purdue Pharma, which produces OxyContin, has agreed, to, tentatively agreed, to pay about 12 billion US dollars in legal settlements just in the last week or so. Should we in New Zealand be concerned about the role of big business when it comes to cannabis and whatever incentives might be at play for big business if indeed we vote to legalize it? So I think the issue of the commercialization of cannabis is very separate from the um, issue of over-marketing of opiates to vulnerable people. Did you understand my No, uh, no, no, I know, there. but I don't think anyone's ever died from a cannabis overdose. That's all I'm saying. Mm. And that's doubtful that would happen after legalization. So it's very different drugs. That being said, there are things that you can put in place through regulation that could limit the profit motive in terms of um, expanding cannabis businesses. So the government gets to say what kind of the business structure it wants, and I think that New Zealand could actually be really innovative in thinking about having business structures that are not motivated by profit, but more by public health. That is Deborah Small, and that's us for this week. Tonight's up next. Thanks for watching. And na mihi nui kia koto monga karere. Thanks for your contributions. Hey, Tiara Wiki. We'll see you next Monday evening at 9:30. Q and A is made with the support of New Zealand on here.